It's time for our main uh, Bible reading now, which is the last two chapters of Revelation, chapters 21 and 22. If you'd like to follow, uh, you can find them there on page 1041 of the Church Bibles. So Revelation 21, starting at verse 1, it says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither, neither, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, and the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulphur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and showed me the holy city Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, and the north three gates, and the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, twelve thousand stadia, its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, a hundred and forty-four cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of a city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth bell, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, 
transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty in the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honour of the nations, and nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its kinds, twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign for ever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the pride and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Well, do keep that text open. We're going to be looking at that uh, together. There is an outline of where we're going in the service sheets to so do make use of that. 
and there will be an opportunity at the end to ask any questions or make any comments. So you can have that in mind as we go through. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you remain unchanging, that you are the God who is truthful, good, and sovereign over us. And therefore, as your people gathered this morning, as we reflect on your word to us, would you help us to be those who trust and listen and obey? For Christ's sake, amen. Resilience is the idea of being able to persevere through adversity. It's the idea of being able to withstand difficulty and to be able to bounce back from it. It also includes the idea of being able to recover from such adversity to a place of even greater strength than before. That is to say that resilience is not only the ability to withstand difficulty, but to go grow stronger through it. Now, secular research has found that one of the things that fosters resilience is hope. Hope and optimism and positive emotions are seen to be central to the central to the traits that promote resilience. So optimism is the idea of a generally positive view of life, an outlook that expects there to be a good outcome in the future, and finds reason for positive emotions. And you can see how the two work together, resilience and hope. In adversity, hope provides the promise of a brighter future. It puts the current adversity in perspective and we're encouraged to persevere. The opposite of hope is despair. And if we despair in adversity, well, rather than um, demonstrate resilience, we give up. Now, the observation of the importance of the place of hope in fostering resilience is interesting. We need hope if we're to persevere through adversity. But there is a danger if we stop here. If we stop with the idea that hope is a good thing and we need more of it. The danger is that we look uncritically at hope. Might there be a wrong kind of hope? In which case, the problem is not that there's not enough hope in the world, but there's not the right kind of hope. But what might be considered as a wrong kind of hope? Well, one kind of hope that's been quite well documented, not least by the 20th century German philosopher Ernst Bloch, and his theory was that the way to inspire people and to give them hope is to present what life could be like. 
to present the dream, an ideal. And then propose that now we take steps that work towards that dream or ideal. Now, blocks thinking is very influential today, even if you don't know it by name. And I wonder if you recognize it. For in many ways, the hope that the world has is in a future that we imagine it to be. And so we take steps now to bring about that future hope. So, for example, we imagine a world that is green. And so we try and recycle and use renewable energy. We imagine a world that is healthy, and so we develop medicines and try to eradicate diseases. We imagine a world that is just, and so we make laws and go to court. It is our dream of a better world that determines what we do now. Now you might think, what's wrong with that? Let's dream dreams and move towards them. But consider for a moment a couple of crucial questions. First question is this. Do we ever arrive at the dream? Or are we just travelling, hopefully? Because there's no guarantee, is there? The better world that we have imagined is just something that we have just imagined, made up. But things may never be like that. We may well develop medicines, but do we ever arrive at a final future where there is no disease? Or are we just travelling, hopefully? Second question to consider is this. Who is the dream for? Who will get to enjoy it? For some dreams may take generations to succeed. I mean, take the issue of a green world. Even if we were... Uh, to make a world that was free from pollution and sustainable. By the time that we've done that, we probably won't be here. People speak of preparing a future for others, getting it ready for our children or our children's children. And whilst they may benefit from our efforts, well, we won't be able to enjoy it with them. And so whilst this approach of dreaming dreams and seeking to move towards them is popular, and at one level appears quite inspiring, does it really deliver? Will we ever get there? And even if we do, will we be there to enjoy it? Well, it's today that we conclude our series in the book of Revelation. And it ends with a spectacular vision of a new heaven and a new earth. Let's read again from Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Twenty-one, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for a husband. The new world that verse 1 is portrayed as replacing the old is also called 
the holy city, New Jerusalem, prepared as a bride, verse 2. Now this is not meant to be something other than the new heaven and the new earth, or some tiny part of the new heaven and the new earth. Rather, it's another way of depicting the same reality. It's another example of mixing metaphors, but this time there are three. The new heaven and the new earth, that is the holy city, that is Jerusalem, which is the bride. That is to say, we can think of this whole new thing in three different ways. But, of the three, the metaphor or the symbol that's majored on in these chapters is that of a city, the New Jerusalem. If you look on to 21 verse 10, John is transported in the spirit to a high mountain and he sees the New Jerusalem coming down. And this descent of the New Jerusalem coming down is merely an expansion of what we've already seen in verses 1 to 8. So if you look back in uh, verse 1, it says, John saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And so again in verse 10, John was shown the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now this isn't another coming down. It's the same one. But now it's expounded upon. So there are more elements of the symbolism that are unpacked for us. Now notice that the angel who introduces John to the bride of the Lamb, that is the holy city Jerusalem, was the same angel that introduced John to the prostitute, that is Babylon, back in Revelation 17. So in 17 verse 1, it says this, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. And then here in 21.9, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And making it the same angel is a way of drawing attention to the two women and therefore to the two cities, Babylon and the New Jerusalem. That is to say, we have these two contrasting cities, New Jerusalem, in contrast with Babylon. What is the difference between the two? Interestingly, in chapter 17, verse 4, Babylon is described as a rich city. And in Revelation 21, the wealth of the new Jerusalem is described. Both cities have wealth. So what's the difference? In the new Jerusalem, God is present with his people. He dwells with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. God's presence will not be limited to a temple structure with the people outside the structure. The people themselves will be both the city 
and a temple in which God's presence resides. God is present with them in an unqualified way. This is in stark contrast to the city of Babylon. Not only is God absent from that city, but that city is characterised as one that is hostile to God and who opposes God and his people. In other words, the New Jerusalem is centred on God, whereas Babylon is opposed to God. Now, it's intriguing to learn that the passing away of the old world includes the sea being no more in chapter 21, verse 1. And I take it that isn't an insight into the hydrological principles that will be at work in the new creation. Rather, the sea is being used symbolically. Back in Revelation chapter 13, the first beast was depicted as rising out of the sea. In Revelation 18, the sea was the main avenue for the idolatrous trade practices of Babylon. And in Revelation 20, the sea was symbolic of a place for the dead. But at this point, the commentator Bill makes an interesting insight. Listen to this. He says, while all these meanings of sea are in mind here, the immediate context suggests a focus on the sea as representing the threat of tribulation for God's people, which will no longer exist. And his insight comes from a parallel that he observes between verse 1 and verse 4. Let me show you. Let's read again verses 1 and 4. So verse 1 says... Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And then verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. <clears throat> and Beale observes two points of parallel. The first is that each verse talks about the old order passing away. So verse 1, it's put in terms of the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. In verse 4, it's put in terms of the former things have passed away. And it follows then that the sea finds its parallel with the afflictions that threaten God's people. That there is no more sea means that there will be no more trials over which to weep in the final order of things. That is to say, when we learn that God will wipe every tear from our eyes, this doesn't mean that when we're feeling a bit teary, he'll be there with a hanky. It represents the concrete reality that the trials and tribulations of the people of God will be finally over. And this then points to another contrast between these two cities. Because Babylon, well Babylon was the cause of the tribulations of the people of God. 
And now Babylon's been defeated. And now Babylon has been defeated. God and his people experience rest from their enemies. Babylon is brought to an end, whereas the new Jerusalem stands forever. Now, this vision of a new Jerusalem, where God is at rest with his people, is this not just another block? Imagine a world where, but just a Christian version of it. Some people like to imagine a world that's pollution-free, whereas Christians, well, we like to imagine a world where God dwells with his people. Isn't it the same thing, just a different imagination? (coughs) Well, the dynamic is actually very different. As the new Jerusalem comes as the fulfilment of promise. The new Jerusalem doesn't come out of the imagination of the saints, but by the word of God. And this promise is made explicit for us in uh, verses 7 and 8. Have a look. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. This for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, the idea of the one who conquers is now familiar to the reader of Revelation, because it was introduced to us way back in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, as part of the description of those who persevere in faithful witness to the end, enduring persecution, and contending against error. And each of the letters to the churches ended with a promise to the one who conquers, which involved participating in some element of the new creation. But it's here that that promise comes together. Verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. The new Jerusalem is the inheritance of the saints, and central to it is his personal relationship with God. His promise is to be his sons, not merely creatures. But before we conclude, I wonder what you made of the description of those who are excluded from this inheritance in verse 8. I'd always thought that it was just a general description of unbelievers, reminding it that there'd be nothing impure allowed into the new Jerusalem that would compromise it. But consider for a moment the first description in the list, verse 8. But as for the cowardly, why are cowards excluded from the new Jerusalem? Well, listen to what the commentator Bill puts forward. John lists various kinds of sinners among those who will deserve judgment. By introducing the list of sins with cowards, 
and concluding it with liars. He shows that these vices primarily indicate failures of so-called Christians facing the threats or reality of persecution. The but contrasts the cowardly with those who conquer. So that the cowardly are those who have been professing Christians. They are those in the visible community of faith who have turned back in the holy war with the world and have not demonstrated courageous faith in the battle against the beasts. Verse 8 comes, therefore, as a sober warning to the saints to remain faithful. Well, we began with the observation that hope fosters resilience. But rather than falling into the danger of thinking that we simply need more hope if we're to endure adversity, we need to look more critically at hope. There is a wrong kind of hope. The problem is not that there's not enough hope in the world, but it's not the right kind of hope. It's interesting to note that both cities have hope. Block's hope, very much at home, in Babylon. Rather than aligning its future with God, it aligns its future with its own imaginations. Locke's hope is ultimately idolatrous and godless. Hope in the New Jerusalem, however, well, that's based on God's promise. And it is a better hope than what Babylon can offer. Remember those two questions we considered earlier? Well, let's think in terms of the New Jerusalem. Will we ever get there? Will we ever get to a New Jerusalem? Yes, it is promised by God. Who is that hope for? Well, it's not just for those of us who are left when it comes. The promise is for all those who remain faithful to the end. And the resilience that such hope fosters is precisely this faithfulness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to consider the different types of hope in these two cities. And pray, please, we would not conform to uh, the hope of Babylon, but rather to the hope that you offer in your scriptures. It's based on your promise. We thank you how that is a much better hope, one that is certain and which we can all partake of for all eternity. And we pray that with this promise in mind, that that hope would indeed um, foster resilience in us through trials, precisely in the way that we continue in faithfulness to you. In Jesus' name, Amen.
Okay, I mentioned at the start, um, the time for questions or comments. I know it's a bit warm, but we'll see how we get on. Normally we have three questions, but anybody want to make a comment or ask a question? Nathan. Yeah, good one. Uh, like for the recording, just to summarise, uh, so Nathan's observed 22, 6 and 7 is very similar to how, how the book ends, how the book began, Revelation 1, uh, verse 1, particularly these words of the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And the comment that that provides a coherence, there's one message of this book, which is to foster faithfulness to this God in light of the things that he's going to do. Um, yeah, interesting. So, Chanton, um, one thing to add, Chanton Nathan earlier, one thing that's been interesting going through this reading is actually how, you know, Revelation 2 and 3 are often the parts that maybe are most familiar because they're the bits that are pulled out as been less symbolic and, you, you know, you can do a nice little sermon series on seven churches. But actually, as we've gone through, we've seen actually how those two chapters ground the whole book. And I guess you get little uh, observations like Nathan has said that actually encourages to see the book as a whole. Um, and actually, the very fact, I think 21.7 is a lovely verse. Uh, to the one, who, the one who conquers will have this heritage. And we've had that refrain, to the one who conquers, I will give, I will give. And in Revelation 2 and 3, you had those certain picking up an element of the new heaven and new earth. But now you get this spectacular description of new heaven and new earth. And uh, John is saying, actually, the one who conquers will have this. This, this is our inheritance. And central to that will be that um, God will be our God and we will be his son. Yeah. Cool. Anybody else? Yes, Nikki.
Yeah, it's a tricky one, that, isn't it? <laughs> um, okay, so how do you understand 22 verse 11? Um, so I'm going to go back to verse 10 because that provides a bit of context, which I think will help with the answer. So 22:10 it says, And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evil evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. So um, I take it one of the things that we find peculiar with that is it seems to be that we'll be happy with the last part, the righteous do right and the holy to be holy. That, that seems within normal parameters. But when it says that the evil doer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy, you kind of think, are you commanding kind of a continuation in evil? Or you just think, why aren't you being called to repent? And I think the answer comes both, bearing in mind verse 10, and also the genre of the book. Because throughout the book, we've had this um, division into two, this bifurcation between um, you know, those who bear the mark of the lamb, the saints, those who have the mark of the beast. And it's interesting because you never have, you don't have people with the mark of the lamb becoming Christians and then having the mark of the, sorry, people having the mark of the beast. Someone shares the gospel with them, they become a Christian, but they then have the mark of the lamb. That isn't how the book is working. Um, that's what's happening on the ground. But here, because we're given a heavenly perspective, there's basically there's two types of people. You either have the mark of the beast and the mark of the lamb. And it's not, it's not, we're not seeing the messiness of the ground of how it is that those who have the mark of the lamb come to have eternal life as they respond in repentance and faith to the gospel. Okay, so in that sense, it's, it's, you have to kind of keep bearing that in mind. And so I think what verse 11 is saying here is that you, it's saying you've got these, these two groups and they're going to continue to play out as they are. And it relates to verse 10, which is interesting, particularly when you read Daniel. Because you remember with Daniel, when he has um, um, the visions, he's told to seal them because the time is not yet. Whereas now... Here, John is told, do not seal up these words because the time is near. We're close to the end. And so I think it's this idea, we're close to the end. We've got these two um, groups with their characteristics and, and they are going to play out. And, and the Bible is not um, naive to that. and just saying, this is, this, is, this is what's going to happen, but it's not the final state of affairs. So I think that's what's going on. Does that make sense? Time for more. Is everyone happy on the two kinds of hope or the right kind of hope? Is that all clear? Susie, oh, did you go to Okay. <laughs> yeah, this is right. yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let me just let me briefly summarise because it's too good not to get. So well, I think anyway. Um, 
the so the question is like the hope of Babylon, what is that? And it's also funny, like, do we need to know it? Interestingly, I do think we do need to know it because in understanding the hope of Babylon helps us not to conform to it. So generally, the way with Christians is we want to be as appropriate, to be explicit in understanding the world, because that's part of the way we can then reject wrong thinking and accept right thinking. Otherwise, if we just go along with the world, so if we're not thinking, there's that risk of then just conforming, a bit like passive smoking, you're not even really aware that's what's going on. So it's worth just, just remembering again, is let's go back a step. Um, first um, thought about this when we looked at um, the question of love, because there you have this idea of there's not enough love in the world, we need more love. And it was the idea that actually the problem is not there's not enough love in the world, but there is not the right type of love. And we may be slightly more familiar with that. So you can have self-love or love of God. So everyone has love. The question is, what kind of love have you got? Now that is super helpful because the question then isn't, how do I get more love? How do I have the right kind of love? In other words, it helps us to think critically about what it is that we are wanting to reject and accept. So in terms of Babylon and New Jerusalem, Babylon's characterized by self-love. The New Jerusalem is characterized by love of God. Okay? But both have love. And that goes back to Augustine. Who, um, but here we've been thinking about a similar sort of thing, but this time with hope. So both cities have hope. So it's not like Babylon, if you live there, it's despair, awful, whereas in New Jerusalem, it's full of hope. Actually, there's hope in Babylon. It's the wrong kind of hope. Now, in terms of, if you want to, I mean, it's, okay, this is a bit of a heads up for Equip to Serve. One of the things we're going to be doing in our next module in Equip to Serve is go through the history of Western philosophy, understanding about all the different ways people have thought about it, all kinds of things, and then put them to the measure of Scripture so we can then say, actually, that kind of thinking belongs more to Babylon than to um, the New Jerusalem. But the example I gave today was Bloch's hope, which is this idea of basically imagine, um, imagine the world how you want it to be. So imagine or dream, dream of a world about how you want it to be and then take steps to get there. So like a contemporary one today would be, imagine a world where there's no more pollution, um, where we're net zero carbon, um, all of that, environments in a good state. Imagine that world and then do what you can now to take steps to get there. Um, and that's quite hopeful. You can dream, um, dream those dreams. In fact, some of you remember, we used it in the uh, Carol service, where if you remember the Elton John, um, John Lewis advert, it started with him being a superstar, and it went back through his life to him being given a piano as a boy. And the idea is, you know, if you give a piano to a boy, you know, that's the first step in then becoming the reality of a sort of a megastar. That's it's kind of how that philosophy of thinking works. But it belongs to Babylon because it's not aligning our thoughts with God, it's aligning our thoughts with our own imagination. Because basically you dream the world that you fancy and then, you know, let's crack on with let's crack on with that. So
So that's the. Does that make sense? Um, but it's helpful because that kind of a wrong hope is in contrast to the hope that God gives us, which isn't based on our imaginations of a world where he wipes every tear from our eyes and we dwell with him. It's based on his word. And if there's one thing we know about God, is that God is a God who keeps his word. And actually, he's already done the harder thing in sending his son to die in our place. And therefore, he can do the easier thing of renewing all things. So that's, the, that's what's going on. Cool. All right, we can talk more at the picnic. But let's um, leave it there. We're going to sing again. In a moment, we're going to share in the Lord's Supper. This next song uh, is called Behold the Lamb Who Bears Our Sins Away. <laughs>